Well, good morning to you again. Uh, good morning to uh, Wilmington. It's good to have you as well. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today, if you open your Bibles there. Or if you don't have a Bible, you can use the one in the seat. I think it's like page 815. We're in a series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, and to serve as an introduction this morning, I've asked for an expert demonstrator to come forward uh, to help me out with some musical stuff. So Rich, would you take your place at the keyboard? So I am, I'm not uh, a true musician, so I'm going to say words and phrases, and if you are a musician, give me some grace, but there are combinations of notes that sound good to the ear, the human ear. There's, there's, if someone were to play a chord, um, certain notes just seem to belong together. We don't know whether that's because they actually do belong together, like there's a science behind it, or whether it's kind of a culturally determined, but nonetheless, there are notes that uh, when played together in your ear, uh, sound good. And we call that consonants. When there's consonants, that means when there's sort of a, a harmonic relationship between those notes. Here's an example. Rich, would you play us a consonant chord? Ah. Do it one more time. Yeah, that's good. That's good. It just, it's right. Now, there are other chords or other relationships of notes that do just the opposite. There are notes on the keyboard. Now, all the notes on the keyboard are supposed to be on the keyboard. There's no wrong note on the keyboard, but there are notes that do not, we don't like played with other notes. We call that dissonance. Rich? Do it one more time. Let him feel the pain. Yeah. That's it, right? That's dissonance. Thank you very much. It was great. That is, uh, sure, yeah, he's our expert demonstrator. There you go. There is consonance, notes that belong together, and there's dissonance. Notes that to our ear do not belong together, should not be played together. And when someone is playing that, that chord and they hit that dissonant note, um, if you have an ear for music, something says something's not right here. They either misplayed. It's, it's rare. It's rare that dissonance actually carries a song or pivots a song well. Today, I'm talking about this because today Paul, the apostle, is going to say that the message of Christ, the message of the cross is what he's going to call it, the message of the cross is a dissonant message to the ears of humanity. He's going to say that the, the, if we just tell the true and pure story of Jesus, when it hits the ears of our culture, it will sound off. It won't sit in harmony. It won't sit in consonance with the wisdom of the world. But in fact... Something in the person, when they hear it, is going to have to make a decision. Like, there's a note that's wrong here. Is it that note or is it that note? That's what Paul's going to say. And furthermore, Paul is trying to warn the church 
maybe I think the warning might be something like this. Warn the church against trying to make Christ who's dissonant, trying to adjust him so that he sounds like the world. That's the challenge that's in front of Paul and, and, and certainly that challenge endures to this day. So it's, it's one worth uh, sp- spending some time in. Last week, we started with the problems in the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter of problems. You're going to hear probably 10 or 15 problems over the course of the letter. And you really can't get a, you know, you really don't know what the heart problem is. You almost have to see all of them and go, what's the common root? But last week, we heard the very first problem. And it was, there seemed to be Uh, divisions or dividings in the fellowship around certain teachers. There There was a cultic following around the preachers, is what it sounded like. Some were following after Paul, some after Apollos, some they said they were after Cephas. There was a, these ministers had, not by any effort of their own, they had gotten a cult following, as though they were actually different. And Paul at one point has to say to them, hey, we're nothing but servants. I planted, Apollos watered, but God brings the increase. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you leaving the first thing, the sinner thing, which is Jesus Christ, and why are you gravitating to these nuances, these preacher nuances, which are really so secondary? It seems to have even affected how they viewed baptism, that people, I'm imagining, so I'm I'm trying to find meaning in in what's being written here, but I imagine the situation is something to the effect that a, a convert is particularly proud of having received baptism from a particular teacher. And Paul sort of speaks and says, that's messed up. It's not who baptized you It's into whom you were baptized that matters. We were brought into Christ. Why would anything else matter? And to lose sight of that is concerning for him. Well, in verse 17, he's going to start kind of a pivot into uh, another side of this challenge. This is what he says in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, that makes sense with what I just summarized. But here, here's this new part. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So there are a few things this doesn't mean, at least I don't think it means. I don't think Paul is grateful that he is not eloquent. I don't think he's saying, I sure am happy that when I came to you, I was a terrible speaker. And that my, when I share the message of Christ to you, I was full of a lot of ums, and I jingled the change in my pocket the whole time, and I never looked up for my text, and I spoke in a monotone voice. That, that is never, there's no missionary that's training to do it poorly. And it's difficult to read Paul, read the eloquence of Paul and suspect that he didn't know how to bring it. I mean, 
He, he is eloquent. The second phrase that we need to be careful with is on the other side of that, right? So he's grateful he didn't come with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's not saying, I don't think, that eloquent wisdom would in fact neutralize the power of Jesus. This, is, this to me is a problem of distraction. I think what he's saying is, is, I'm grateful that I didn't come with such a golden tongue and preach the kinds of words your itching ears wanted to hear so that you would miss what Jesus has actually done for you. That's what I think he's saying. I think he's, he's speaking of the temptation that some teachers have, which is to preach in a way to garner feedback. Preach in such a way as to gain followers rather than to devote themselves to preaching the truth. And he's saying, I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't come to preach in a way that would satisfy your stomach. I came in a way to preach the truth, to put the truth in front of you, and I'm grateful that I did that. And that sort of opens up a big idea, which picks up here in verse 18. I'm going to just read two verses, 18 and 19. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The way of the cross is folly. Even as uh, Paul quotes Isaiah here, he's quoting the Lord who seems to, I don't think the Lord takes genuine pleasure in this, but it seems like the Lord finds satisfaction in thwarting the scheme of the self-proclaimed wise man. That seems to be I don't think this is sort of a, a cruel God who's happy that humanity is missing him. Rather, I mean, the Lord, God so loved the world, he sent his son. I don't think it's that. I think what he's saying is when there's preaching, Paul's saying when there's preaching in a way that misses the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ, that's a problem. And he's saying here that the word of the cross is at dissonance with the wisdom of the world. The message of Jesus Christ crucified for the salvation of mankind through the forgiveness of sins and the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit because of the love and mercy of God, that message doesn't really have a home in all of the various worldly wisdoms that compete for our attention. It's a dissonance. It is a wrong note. And you either have to compromise on Jesus to make him sound world smart, or you have to abandon the wisdom of the world. But the way Christ has come into the world thwarts the discernment of the discerning. 
That's, that's what he's saying, is the message of the cross is defiantly countercultural, both to the Jew and to the Gentile, to everybody. It's defiantly counterculture. You cannot remain enamored with the wisdom of the world. You cannot be always looking for the next great thing or caught up, and that's where my hope for life is. You can't do that and actually hope to find Jesus. You're going to end up doing one or the other. And it seems that God's very aware of this. Look at look in verses 20 and 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, excuse me, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In God's wisdom, he sees that the wisdom of the world is inadequate to find him. For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, the wisdom of the world is incapable of coming to the right conclusions about who God is and what he's done. That's what he's saying. Pick whatever kind of wisdom you're using. It will not bring you to the necessary conclusions that you need the mercy of God and that the mercy of God is offered through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And and Paul says, God in his great wisdom saw that our not so great wisdom was going to do not so great things so he sent Christ, which to us sounds like foolishness and folly. And in fact, he sent Christ in a way where the dissonance of Jesus almost re- requires you make a decision about him. He doesn't simply land like a soft note. He lands like an off note. If you know the story of Christ and you're entirely of the world, you're going to have to pick. Either he is an off note in your song or he's the first right note in a new song. That's what's happening here. I like to think of the wisdom of the world as the wisdom that came from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, in Genesis 3, the serpent deceives the woman, right? And says, hey, there's a secret hiding behind this fruit. The Lord doesn't want you to eat this because if you eat this, you're going to become like him. You're going to know all sorts of things, right? And that temptation baited Adam and Eve to fall, to rebel against God. And the Lord even acknowledges at the end of the chapter, the Lord says, look, they have become just like us, knowing the difference between good and evil. I think the wisdom of the world is the, is the best thinking that mankind can produce so long as man is the autonomous, independent end and goal of the thought. If you are the point of creation, the wisdom of the world is going to work just fine. The problem is you're not the point. It's not about you. 
And we are not autonomous and independent. God made us to be dependent upon him so that we would know him and be in relationship with him. And the wisdom of the world assumes sort of a self-contained humanity when it's not. It's neither morally neutral nor is it self-contained. And God is, God's sending Christ it either, it either will, in its exposure, will feel like Jesus' is talk is foolishness to you or that something's wrong with your worldview. He gives two, two examples, two chief examples of his time here in the chapter. Verse 22 is the Jews, and then he gives the Greeks. Secondly, he says this in 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, Jews declare signs. He's sort of summarizing, what he's doing is he's summarizing the wisdom of, of Judaism. Judaism at the time had a view. It had a high view of God. It was very religious. It believed in prayer. It believed in God. So it's, it was not an atheistic or secular wisdom. It was a God-oriented wisdom, but this is what it believed. It believed that God was going to come down in strength and in power, and that he was going to overturn the oppressor. And he was going to save his people. The Jews knew they were God's people, chosen by God, elected by God, set apart by God, given land by God, and promises from God. And that God, from God, they would receive a Messiah who would rescue them from the world and set things right. Their expectation was, their wisdom said, that their hope would come in power. So, what do they do with a crucified Savior? who's beat and mocked and whipped and laughed at and scorned and hung on a cross between two thieves with a crown of thorns on his head. What do they do with that weakness? Paul's saying it is a total stumbling block to the Jews to approach God through a weak Messiah, through a dead Messiah. The, the death of Jesus is just anathema to people who've been waiting for a strong Messiah to come. Likewise, he says of the Greeks, he says, Greeks seek wisdom. You even see in Acts 17, when Paul goes to Athens and he preaches in Athens, it says there, there were all sorts of people sharing the latest things. It says these people loved to talk about the latest ideas. And he says they seek wisdom. And in Greek thinking... God, the spirit world and the flesh world, this is Greek philosophy, the spirit world and the flesh world are very distinct from one another. The spirit tends to reflect the things that are good and the flesh is sort of the unfortunate reality in which we live. But to understand rightly, you are supposed to sort of think spiritually. And a God, if a God does exist, is a transcendent, distant God, far away, who would never, 
ever condescend to live in a fleshly body. It would be against his character. It would be against, against the nature in Greek thinking. It would be against the very nature of God to incarnate himself as flesh because flesh is low. Who would do that? Paul says, the story of an incarnate Messiah who would come and in the midst of mocking would not open his mouth and in the midst of beating would not rise up in power and would suffer death and resurrection. Suffer the death and the crucifixion on our behalf is a scandal to the Jews. And to suggest to the Greeks that God cares about us, us fleshly little creatures, that he would come and take our form is crazy. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, but God did it that way to shock him. God is striking a dissonant note among the thinking of people. And the truth is, I think every version, every category of worldly wisdom is in great dissonance with Jesus Christ. It's not just the Jews and the Greeks. In fact, I think those basic categories remain to this day. The wisdom of strength and the wisdom of wisdom. They, are, they are prevail just as much as today as they ever have. Paul says, for those who get it, 24, those who are called, both of the Jews and the Greeks, when they, when they, when they get it, when they're caught by it, they see in Christ, not weakness, but power. And they see in Christ, not foolishness, but wisdom. In fact, when they get that note, when they, when they realize that is the first really good note they've ever heard, then the old song becomes dissonant. And the new song becomes consonant. Why would he do this? Why would he come in such a way to challenge the status quo of wisdom? Here, the answer is actually not in the message of Christ, but in uh, the body of Christ, the fruit of the message. Look at 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why has he done this? He's done this so that we might boast in him. God, the assembly of the redeemed, reflect the dissonant wisdom of Jesus Christ. Right? Christ seems... The message of the Christ seems at odds with humanity. Well, so does the body of Christ should. The body of Christ should appear equally dissonant with humanity as the message of Christ. 
that God has seen fit to reach the weak and the foolish and the poor and the meek and those who are not. He has chosen to work his greatest wonders among the bad decision makers of our culture or the ones who cannot he has chosen to do the most with. And in doing that, in sort of doing a strange and amazing thing with an unfortunate crowd of people, the dissonance of Jesus Christ is all the greater. It's you and I, in other words, are supposed to incarnate the odd dissonance of the message of Christ. We are supposed to be strange. Now, a challenge here, I, I think, I think this is a challenge in this section of Scripture. It's in the 26th verse where Paul says, not many were powerful, not many were wise according to worldly standards, not many were of noble birth. That, I think, is the challenge uh, for, for us. And he doesn't say none, he doesn't say none of you are of noble birth. He says not many, but I, I, I wonder, and I don't know what to do with this, except to say that it seems to me that our room is mostly full of the not many. Which is an awkward feeling. You know, I think... It, it causes me to ask challenging questions of myself. I, I don't have the right to give you those questions. I just think it maybe should make us humble listeners. Because God is intent on making his glory known through holy dissonance. We are not supposed to look like them. For that's how he's chosen to be seen. Had he come cloaked in the wisdom of the world, he would have never been seen. He's making a splash through holy dissonance. And he does that through doing strangely wonderful things with you and me. By grabbing things that are not and breathing into them redemption and sanctification and love and righteousness so that they become awesome things that the world has to contend with intellectually. They have to look and go, I don't get the story of Jesus, but that, I don't know what to do with that. Why does he do this? To say he does it so that people boast in the Lord, I think is sort of a dead end statement for some some of us, I think they would say, well, that just sounds like God has an ego. I don't think he's doing it to have his ego boosted. I think the Lord is doing it this way so that people boast in the Lord because the wisdom of this world is shipwrecked. It is utterly shipwrecked. The wisdom apart from God is taking you nowhere. 
So God does wonderful things through decrepit, shameful people so that they might boast in the Lord to get someone else who's caught up in the wisdom of the world to get them to take a second and reconsider. The dissonance is supposed to catch their attention because the wisdom of the world will be your destruction. It cannot save you and it may perilously destroy you and your family. That's what we need to appreciate is that the only hope that there is is in the foolish weakness of Jesus Christ. And through sort of the resounding dissonance of a God-boasting fellowship, he's seen. I'll show you one other thing here. So not only is the message dissonant, and not only is the fruit of the message, the church dissonant, but the messenger was dissonant. Look at chapter two. And I, this is Paul talking, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's two things here that are worth noting. One, Paul, when he arrives in Corinth, does not preach to them in the way that their itching ears would like to hear. He doesn't do that. He actually, in his preaching, defies what they would want to hear so that they could hear what they need to hear, which they would not normally have heard had he preached in a way that they would have appreciated. He's preaching out of tune so that the simple but true nature of our hope in Jesus Christ might be unavoidably true, might be seen as unavoidably true. You know, you could preach, I suppose, and and I will say, right, this entire text has its own hard word for preachers, but it is written to the church. So if you take my word that I've sat in this all week, now you can sit in it, right? There is a way to preach the gospel where self-interested eloquence can say things so nicely that you could say the gospel and it would not be heard. You could have have a preacher with a golden tongue who could dance around the things of God all day long and when you would end, you wouldn't know what he said, but boy, did he say it well. He's saying, I didn't do that to you. I didn't do that to you. It wasn't in my heart to do that to you. And even when I came to you, my physical demeanor, we don't know what it is, but somehow it sounds like he was even physically meek and coming to them. Like he, he wasn't even a man's man at, at the podium. He wasn't even, he didn't cast, he wasn't a superstar. He didn't have a nice tattoo of barbed wire around his arm or anything like that. He was weak, preaching weakness to weakness out of which God boasts. That's the dissonance of God. And it happens Verse four, he says, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. I find this interesting. Ultimately, ultimately, the power of God does not come through 
a highly refined intellectual argument that proves his existence, it comes through a manifestation of God's power. It comes among a people of faith who take a step and experience God. And I say this because I, I get apologetics. I get, I get the desire to defend the faith to the outside community, and I see the value in saying it's reasonable. But I will say there is no level of apologetic that will make the, exist, the work of Jesus Christ entirely plausible. The message of Jesus Christ needs, ultimately needs to be eloquently dissonant. And we can, in our efforts to make the truth compatible with whatever crowd we want it to be, we so want to be, we got to guard ourselves. Maybe it's we so want to be part of that crowd, all right? But we so want that crowd to know that we could shed the very dissonant things that God is trying to push them with. We don't want a sinner to hear judgment. I think God wants a sinner to know about judgment. Why would he not? We don't want someone who's heading down unwise paths to maybe feel a certain way. I'm not saying we carry around a bucket of guilt and slop it all over people. I'm not saying that. And I do believe it takes a great amount of godly wisdom to understand when to be dissonant and how to be dissonant. I am saying, though, the message of the cross is dissonant. It is. Maybe, maybe I'll close with that in, in, uh, in light of the Lord's table here. I, I want you to think. Can you have a more dissonant picture, by the way, than the Lord's Supper? Jesus is saying, I need you today to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Who does that? That's not an old Jewish tradition. (laughs) That flies in the face of Jewish tradition. It was more radical among the disciples than it is among us. Today, we're going to gather around the flesh of Christ and his spilled blood. And we're going to take it in as a reminder that if it were not for his shed blood and his given body, we would have no hope. Like we, we should rest in this dissonance. We should rest in sort of the abrupt language of the Lord's table that says, unless Christ died for you and unless you take him, you have no part with God. This is our hope. Let's, let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer with this in mind. Lord, I want to lift up each one of us. I'm, uh, I pray we could pray collectively before you that you would guard us from seeking to make you sound so worldly wise. Lord, and I pray uh, uh, a confessional prayer of... of maybe we can come to you in confession of the ways we want you at times. We want you to be like the gospel of our world, like the good news of our worldly wisdom. And so we, we file you down and we tamp you and we reshape you so that you sound better. 
We pray for your forgiveness there. I ask each one of you, maybe in prayer, just to think. If you are a follower of Jesus, my question to you in prayer would be, where are you striking an odd note with your culture? Is there any dissonance between you and the lives of your coworkers or friends or what is what's being heard from your life? If you model Christ, what does that look like? Lord, we're gonna bring this to the table today and ask that your spirit would work in us so that uh, you might be truly boasted of through your power. In Jesus' name, amen.